be turning in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the end of chapter 2. Beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen also to me. Happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave, turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Father, we come before You in this moment and we ask that You would come, that You would be with us, Father, that Your presence would be among us. And I ask that You would be with me, that You would fill me with Your Spirit as I seek to communicate Your Word to Your people. Father, we are covering a a large amount of verses this morning and there is much to be seen here. Glorious things. Help me to communicate them well. May I speak with clarity. Father, may You be with my mind, my thoughts. May You be with my mouth and may You be with my heart. Father, help me to preach these things with joy, with passion. And may you be with those who are sitting there listening. May they receive them with joy, welling up in their hearts. As we look at what the preacher is telling us and how we see that Jesus Christ is at the center of it all, shining forth His glory. Father, may it be put on display this morning and may it be for the good of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly.
For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done. That's what the preacher says in verse 12. He has, as we have seen over the past couple of weeks, been testing and observing wisdom and madness and folly, which which refers to the pleasure-filled life that we saw last week in verses in chapter 2, verses 1, all the way down to verse 11. So he's, he's referring to the pleasure-filled life. He has tested them both extensively, and he has come up empty-handed both times. As he says in verse 11, it was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's what he said after his observation, his experiment with the pleasure-filled life. And he said the same thing about wisdom at the end of chapter 1. But now here in verse 12, the preacher seeks to compare the two. He seeks to compare wisdom and folly because he knows that he has done all that he can do in pursuing gain in those areas. That's why he says that the man who comes after him can only do what he has done. So he's looked at wisdom. He's observed it. He's tested it. Then he moved on to to the folly, to the foolishness, to the pleasure-filled life. And he tested it, both of them extensively. He came up empty-handed both times. And he knows that he can go no further. And so now he seeks to look back and to compare the two. He has explored every avenue of gain or profit that the world has to offer, whether it be in the realm of wisdom or in the realm of pleasure and foolishness. The preacher has been there. He's tried it. He's he's experimented with it. So let's say even if someone was to, to have more riches or more possessions or whatever, in the end he's showing that it doesn't matter because they are essentially walking down the same paths and they're opening up the same doors that this man has walked down and opened up. And in the end, all they can find is the same thing that he found, which is vanity. All is vanity and nothing to be gained under the sun. So the preacher, knowing this, knowing that he cannot experiment with wisdom or pleasure any further, he seeks now to look back over them and to compare them. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, right? You know, that's what we often say. After we've gone through something, we've, we've seen it all. Hindsight's twenty-twenty. We can look back and see clearly. See all the mistakes that you made. And you may think to yourself, well, I wish I would have done this or that. And, you know, now that I can see the mistakes that I have made. So this is what he's doing. He's looking back. He's comparing the two. Maybe he can see something that he couldn't see before. And as he does this, he does find something. He finds that, as he says in beginning of verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, 
but the fool walks in darkness. So the preacher observes and finds that wisdom has more gain than folly does. And he compares it to light and to darkness. Just like there's more gain to be had in the light than in the darkness. So it is with wisdom. And again, he says that the wise person is like a man who has his eyes in his head, who sees clearly. He's walking, looking at the ground before him. He sees clearly. The foolish person, on the other hand, is like a man who's stumbling around in the darkness, almost like he's walking backward, who doesn't know where he's going, stumbling over every little crack and rock that's on the ground. And you and I could see this plainly in everyday life, right? What the preacher is trying to say here, that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. I mean, think about the person that you may know of. Think about a wise person versus the foolish person. The wise person in their wise living, generally speaking, is going to have more than the fool does because the fool wastes his life and the resources that has been given to him. He wastes them. But the wise person takes advantage of them. He uses them wisely with knowledge and with skill. And so generally speaking, the wise person is like a person who is walking in the light, who has his eyes in his head. But the foolish person stumbles here and there throughout all of life. So as we come to these verses, it seems that the preacher has finally found Something positive in his quest, right? I mean, over and over again, we've seen the man say, after everything that he's looked at, it's vanity. It's vanity. All is vanity. You know, what has man gained after all of his toil? Well, now we come to these verses, looking back, and he says that wisdom has more gain than folly does. So has he found his answer? You know, has he actually been productive? Has he brought back something to show the world. Wisdom seems to be the answer. Because as he says, if you live a life of wisdom, you will have more than the fool will have. But as we keep going, we see that this positive note, it doesn't last very long. The preacher observes something else. He says in the second part of verse 14, And yet... I perceived. So he saw that there's some gain in wisdom. But yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Event. What's he talking about there? What's the event that he's speaking of? He's speaking of death. Death is the terrible reality that is true for every person everywhere. Death comes to all. Death doesn't care if you're a person that has lived your entire life walking in wisdom or if you have done the complete opposite and have lived a life of foolishness. Death doesn't care. It will take your life all the same and it's going to strip away everything that you've gained under the sun. Death shows no partiality. 
That's why, and we were looking at this in our Sunday school lesson this morning, death is often called the great equalizer because death puts everybody on level ground. It doesn't matter if you're the person like the preacher who has lived his life in wisdom, gained so much, you know, this successful businessman has all of this enterprise is laying before his feet, all of these possessions, all of this wealth, this treasure. Or if you're like the fool who sits at the corner shaking a can wanting somebody to give him some money because he's wasted his life or for whatever reason. Death doesn't care. You're going to die. You will be buried just like the fool will be buried. And the preacher realizes this of himself. He moves on in this personal realization, you could say. He says in verse 15, And I said in my heart, so this is personal now, he's observed that death happens to both the wise and to the fool, but now it's, it's sunk into his mind, into his heart. And he says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So he understands in a very personal and weighty way that death is coming for him. It's coming for him. It's coming for the preacher. It's lingering over his life just like it's lingering over everyone else's life. Just waiting to snatch away all that he has, his life, and everything that he's acquired, that he's gained for himself. Death is coming. It's coming for him. And that's why he says to himself, Why then have I been so very wise? What's the point, right? What's the point of me doing all of this? What's the point of me being so smart in the business world? What's the point of me acquiring all of this treasure, all of these pleasures, all of this profit? Why have I spent my life being so very wise when in the end I'm going to face the same fate that the fool is going to face? So the answer that he gave a moment ago, that wisdom has more gain than folly, the answer that he thought he had earlier now falls through the cracks. The preacher is forced once again to accept the reality that all is vanity. Yes, wisdom may make you more profitable in this life, as we were looking at. You can see that clearly. It will make you more profitable in this life. But in the end, it's all the same. The fool and the wise person end up dying the same death. And even worse, they will both be forgotten in the same way. And that's what he realizes next in verse 16. For of the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. 
seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So in the end, the wise person and all his accomplishments will be forgotten just like the fools will be forgotten. And the preacher again realizes this for himself in a very personal way. So I want you to picture this in your mind because I want you to feel the weight of what this man is seeing right now. Think about what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks about who he is. This is King Solomon. Think about everything that he gained in his life. You know, this mini world that he had basically created for himself. All the pleasures that the world could offer. This mini paradise that he had at his disposal. He could enjoy whenever he wanted. A reputation that everyone would envy. All of the world seeking his counsel. And now he sees that it's going to just be like nothing in the end. He looks at the person who is foolish, who has wasted their life, who has no reputation whatsoever, has nothing, and he sees that they're going, he's going to be forgotten just like they're going to be forgotten. All of his accomplishments, everything he's ever gained is going to be forgotten just like this nobody over here. So in light of eternity, who is the preacher? He's a nobody, right? He's one speck of a person in a vast world just like everyone else is. All of his wealth, his possessions, his power, and all of his accomplishments will have no enduring remembrance in light of eternity. He will be forgotten just like the fool will be forgotten. And the same is true for you. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Everything you've ever worked for, everything that you've worked so hard to build up in this life, that great retirement that you spent so long, so many hard-earned hours working toward, the reputation that you have in your community or the reputation that you have among your family, all that you've acquired over a short period of time, whether you be young, or over a long period of time, whether you are elderly, toward the end of your life, it's all going to be forgotten. Death's going to come. It's going to strip everything from you. And that's what he sees. He sees this in in the starkest reality that he possibly can. But it continues to get worse. He goes on in verse 17. Now we're going to see that he gives himself over to despair as he continues to think about this reality that death has put before him. He says, so I hated life. I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be 
wise or fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything, everything, to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So the preacher is going to die like the fool. He's going to be forgotten like the fool. And now he thinks about the fact that one day everything he has will go to someone else. Someone else who did not work for it whatsoever. Did not toil, did not put any effort forward whatsoever for these things. And it's just going to be handed off to him. And the worst part, he says, this fool language that he's been using, this foolishness, he realizes that a fool may get all of his stuff. That he worked so hard in such wisdom to acquire. A fool may get his hands on it and squander it all. Now I want you to think about that for a moment, just like he is. Again, everything you've worked so hard for, one day it's going to end up in a rummage sale, in an auction. Whoever's going to get it. Or somebody could get all of it and they could sell it to a pawn shop. They could give it away for 50 bucks so they can go and, you know, find some pleasures. Whatever. Any of that could happen. And that's what he sees. That's what he's thinking about. That's the reality that is staring him in the face right now. A fool who could possibly squander everything that the preacher has built up. And if you remember, that did eventually happen. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, became king over Israel. And during his reign, the kingdom was split in two. And he squandered much of what this man had built up. That was God's punishment on Solomon. Because you remember, he acquired all of these women and they led his heart astray to the idolatry of false worship. Worshiping idols. And so God told him, because you have disobeyed me, because you have done this great treachery, I'm going to tear the kingdom from your hands. But for the sake of David, my servant, I'm not going to do it in your days. I'm going to do it in the days of your son. And that's what happened. So Solomon, the preacher, knowing this, probably thinking about it, not necessarily knowing how it was going to come about, but thinking about this reality, gives himself over to despair. Knowing that a fool is possibly going to waste everything. So he gives himself up to despair. He's confronted with this reality. He gives himself up to despair. Severe depression 
takes over the man. And as he says, he hates life itself, including all of his toil. His past toil and his present toil. He hates all of it. Now, at this point, you know, that strong language that we see the preacher using, you know, I hated life. I hated my toil. Hatred. You know, this depression, this despair over life. We may be tempted to think, and just calm down, you know. You're making this into a big deal. You know, look at everybody else. The same thing is going to happen to them. They're not acting like you are. You know, they're not going about and whining like you are. You are thinking about this death stuff way too much, preacher. It happens to everybody. Just go with the flow. But is he though? Is he making this into a big deal? Is he just overreacting about the reality of death? I don't think so. I don't think he's making it into a big deal. In fact, I think he's just telling the truth that you and I, most of our lives, choose to ignore about the reality of death. The preacher sees death in a way that you and I often like to just put behind us, you know. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to think about what death is going to do to you. How it's going to take everything away from you. When you go to a funeral, if Christ does not come back first, that will be you. At some point, death is coming for you personally. It does not care who you are, what you have done, what you have acquired in this life, it's coming. And it's going to strip it all away. And this man, as we have been seeing over the past couple of chapters, seeks to look at reality. Remember, he's a bottom line man. He wants to know the bottom line truth. He wants to know reality. What does man have to gain in this life under the sun? He stares reality in the face. And this is the result that he gets. The truth. So what he is trying to show us by being so honest is he's trying to show you that you need to stop ignoring reality. You need to stop ignoring the reality that death is coming, that you are going to die, that it's going to take everything away. Stop ignoring it. As David Gibson says in his book, stop creating this fantasy land that doesn't exist, that you've created in your own mind. You know, putting death behind you and just not thinking about it. Looking at all the happy things in the world. Ignoring it. Stop doing that. Stop creating a fantasaical world that does not exist. After considering all of this, the preacher again asks the familiar question. What has a man 
This is verse 22 now. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now this is the same question that he's been asking over and over again. But I want you to notice something. Look at how he words the question this time, at the very beginning. He says, striving of heart. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart at which he toils beneath the sun? By saying that, he means to show all of your effort, you know, all of your being, everything that you've strived for in this world, beneath the sun, everything, everything that you've put forth effort in, where's the gain? What's the profit? And then he goes on just to make you know, matters worse. So not only is death the, the utmost reality, it's going to take everything away, but your life as well is full of sorrow, as he says. Now that word sorrow can also be seen as pain. It carries the meaning of pain. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, where God declared over Adam, in pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Talking about the world, the creation. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. The curse of sin. That's what he's describing here. He is describing once again the reality of our fallen world, the consequences of sin. And specifically, he's describing the reality of sin and the effect that it has on our work, our toil. It's painful. It's sorrowful. It's frustrating, which is what vexation means. All of it. It's frustrating. And I don't have to tell you that. Because you know that work is frustrating, right? I mean, how often do you go to work and you don't want to be there? Because it's frustrating. Things happen that you don't like. You know, things don't go your way sometimes. It seems to push back almost. Like it just means to give you a hard time. It wants you to, to know that it's painful. It's a vexation. And then also, the, the, the thing that he says next, I don't have to tell you that either, because how many times have you laid awake at night thinking about what you have to do the next day and how you don't want to do it? And you don't sleep because of it. Your job may be demanding a large amount of time or attention, taking you away from your family or maybe putting pressures on you that distresses you out. And so you lay awake at night. He says even in his heart, he does not find rest. This is vanity indeed. And even if you are a Christian, remember, you're not exempt from this. We live under the same curse. We live in the same world. We do the same work. You face the frustrations of the fall in your work. The difference between the two 
is what we find in the next verses, beginning in verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. What? How can you go from saying what you just said to saying that? This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So this is surprising, right? You know, how can you, preacher, how can you go from describing this long list of depression, pretty much, you know, all of this toil, all of this pain, the reality of death and what it's going to do to every single one of us in the end, how we're no better than the fool, we'll be buried like the fool, we'll be forgotten like the fool. How can he move from that to now saying that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in it? If you think it to yourself, okay, show me where this enjoyment is. Because what you just described to me does not look very joyful. We would expect the man to end this section saying, so I gave my heart up to despair and bam, that's it. Maybe he wouldn't even be surprised if he committed suicide after saying that. Because how can you find happiness after what he has just described? Where is happiness found in the midst of a reality that just seems to crush you into dust. And that's why some think that these verses describe a man who has abandoned all hope, and so he just tells everyone to eat and drink for tomorrow you die. You know, that type of attitude. You know, all you have is this life, you're going to die, so just eat, drink, Live the pleasure-filled life because, you know, at one point or another, you're going to die. So just enjoy what you can while you can. But that's not what he's saying here. That's not what he means. Because look at who he says gives the enjoyment. Who gives it? God does. God gives the enjoyment. In fact, he says that apart from God, so apart from God separation from God, apart from God, no one can have any enjoyment whatsoever. No enjoyment whatsoever. Now this is just amazing because there are people, sinful people, God-rejecting, God-hating people who enjoy God's gifts because He allows them to. The atheist the person who could care nothing for God. Every time he enjoys something, it's because God allows him to enjoy it. Talk about the patience, the long-suffering, the grace, the mercy of this God. It's unbelievable. Apart from God, who can have any enjoyment whatsoever? You can't. Apart from God, there is no enjoyment. God created joy. He created joy. It is His gift to you. So, the, the question still stands though. 
How has this man gone from describing the cruel reality of death and being overcome with despair to now telling us that we should be finding joy in this life? We find it, we find it in the final verse in verse 26 where he says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now what does all of that mean? That's, that's rather confusing, is it not? I mean, that seems like it's a work-based program going on here. So the one who pleases God, you know, he gets enjoyment. He gets wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But the one who doesn't, the, the sinner... He doesn't receive these things. What does he mean? What, what, what does he mean by this pleasing talk? Well, let's think about this for a moment. How do you please God? How does anybody please God? The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great faith chapter. He says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please Him. Speaking of God, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the preacher himself, at the end of this book, is going to say, the end of the matter, all has been seen, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. So, faith, fear God, and keep His commandments. How do those two come together? How do those two meet in the middle? Because you can't, in and of yourself, fear God and keep His commandments. Right? It's Christ. What Christ has done. The person who has been redeemed through Jesus is the one who is able to have true wisdom, knowledge, and joy. That's what He's showing here. It is only through Christ that you and I are able to hold loosely to the world. And so when you read these verses, what he's saying here, the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Notice that this isn't the first time that he's brought up wisdom, knowledge, and joy, but it is the first time that he says that it comes from God. You know, before this... The wisdom we've been looking at is man's reason at its best. And so man's reason, his knowledge, his intellect has gotten him only despair because it can only take you so far. But when God enables you to have godly wisdom, to have a true vision, sight, of this world, then you receive true knowledge. And then you receive true joy, which is found in Christ. Because through the gospel, Jesus Christ opens your eyes, He saves you, and then He enables you to see that this world is temporary. It's coming to an end. And He enables you to see how to truly live in light of the fall. 
right? Which is what we've been looking at throughout this book. The preacher is meaning to show us how to live in light of the fall. This is the point. This is the point of the whole book. The point, as we've been saying, is gift, not gain, right? Well, you can't fully understand that life is gift and not gain if you do not first understand that death is coming and that it's going to take it away and that it makes this world temporary. So the preacher, as we're going to see in the coming chapters, is going to talk about death, he's going to name death, a lot more because He means for you to learn from it. Because when you learn to live your life by looking at death and knowing that you are going to die, then you learn how to truly live. And looking at death, God enables you to see and to know how to truly live, which is holding, as I said a moment ago, loosely to the things of this world. Again, this goes back to the fall. Adam and Eve and all of the good gifts that God had showered on them, all of those gifts were not meant to be fulfilling in and of themselves, remember? They were meant to lead them to God. God poured out His gifts. They lifted up praise to God. God got the glory. They got the pleasure. But when they rebelled and they sought His gifts above the giver, He punished them with death. Death was brought into the world. And so death shows us how we are meant to be living. He's showing us that what is in this world is just a taste, guys. It's just a taste of who God is. Paul picks up on this language in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, where he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God picking up on this enjoyment language that the preacher has here. Paul can only say that because he realizes, by the help of God, that you know this life is temporary, he's going to die, but Jesus Christ is his reward. And so the smallest of things, eating and drinking, it points him to God. And so he gives him the glory. So that's what the preacher is saying here in these verses. But what about the second part of the verse? What about the second part of what he says? That to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. Now what does that mean? This sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus told His hearers, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
So for the person who is not living a life pleasing to God, the person who is not trusting in Christ, the person who is not finding delight in God but seeking delight in this world, they are displeasing to God. And so what they think they have will one day be taken away and it will be given to those who will one day inherit the world, which is the meat which is the Christian, the followers of Christ. So for the sinner, the person who is displeasing God, the person who is living life apart from God, they may acquire much in this life, but in the end it's going to be taken from them and it's going to be given to the one who is pleasing God in the end, in light of eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth. So as we close this message, this sermon, in talking about the reality of death, are you like the preacher in the beginning of these verses when you think about death? Do you become angry? Do you become frustrated? Do you tend to try to cling to the things of this world? Do you give yourself up to despair? Does it depress you knowing that one day you're going to die? Are you afraid of it? Do you fear death? If so, then the fearing part anyways, it's okay to be afraid. But just know that what Christ has accomplished in His life, His death, and His resurrection has enabled you to not have to fear death anymore because death is no longer an enemy. It is, in a way, a strange friend who opens the door to eternal life. So, Christian, if you are a Christian, when you die, death, as Paul says, no longer has a sting. It instead leads to life. Non-Christian. Non-Christian. Death for you should be fear. And it should bring you to utter despair. It should make you angry. Because when you die, you're going to be stripped of everything. And that's just the beginning. Then there's a life of eternity under the wrath of God. But as the preacher says, in Christ, find enjoyment even in the midst of all of this reality of death and frustration, sorrow and pain and suffering, Jesus Christ has enabled you to no longer fear death, but in fact, welcome it. To say to death, make my day. Bring me into my true treasure to be with my Lord. Father, we come before you and... Oh, how we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its promises. The reality that, yes, death is real. It's coming. It will take all of us if You do not come back first. But the truth that Jesus Christ has defeated it. He's defeated death. In His death on the cross, death died. It was defeated. 
And so we no longer have to fear the greatest enemy of all. But we can, in fact, welcome it and allow it to lead us into Your presence. So Father, I pray that that's what we would be doing here this morning. That in the light of death, in light of the reality of of sin and destruction and the fall, we would be trusting Your Word. We would be reminding ourselves of Your promises. And there we would find confidence. And if there is someone here that does not know Christ, I pray that they would be like the preacher and realize that this reality is their reality. But that they would cling to Jesus and in Him find life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.